As I mentioned, we're going to uh, look actually just the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, if you want to uh, turn to that. And in the first little bit here, we're going to look at uh, mostly chapter two. The big challenge that we uh, face in some circles these days is as one writer put it in, in commenting on this, said this, the, the first few chapters are basically a sentimental love drama that would be rather touching were it not laced with threats of violence. I was innocently sitting there in my office a couple of weeks ago. Scott had to uh, prepare his sermon weeks ahead because uh, he's preaching on Hosea today, but he's had a few weeks holidays. So he comes strolling into my office and says, hey, Alan, just reading a guy. The book of Hosea in the age of me too. Scott knows the Bible a bit better than me, so it took me a little while to clue into what he was saying. But this whole thing about chapter 2 is increasingly uh, a challenging passage. The truth is that the book of Hosea has been a bit of a challenge for all kinds of reasons down through history, starting very soon on about how to understand the book and what does it mean and all these sort of things. Uh, but, but recently, this, this second chapter, if you've got it on your devices or in your Bibles, it's really become something of a bit of a, of a hotbed uh, because it is understood and seen as something that is rather sexually exploitive and uh, even thrown into the mix, which contributes to um, family violence. So you might not have thought about that right away, which I didn't because I'm a guy and I haven't experienced that sort of thing and, and so on. But, but if you look at this chapter, just, just think, think this through in terms of the cycle of violence, of domestic violence. What you find out here in chapter 2, if you think about it, it's Hosea the guy and Gomar the wife, right? Okay, so here we go. And so, and so it kind of starts off here a little bit with, with some name calling, some shaming of the woman. It just sort of starts that way where, you know, Hosea's like, you're not my wife. You're unfaithful. These children of ours, they were born into disgrace, Idea being, you're a disgrace. You caused it to be a disgrace. And so there's this shaming, there's this naming, there's this beginning of a turning down of, of the psyche uh, in, in domestic violence that it happens. And then, and then you carry on here. That's in verse 2 and verse 5. Then you get down to verse, verse chapter 6. And, and what you've got next is social isolation. Where, where Gomar says, listen, I'm going to wall you up. I'm going to put a hedge of thorns around you. I'm going to entrap you. You are not going to have social contact with other people. And we know that in, in domestic violence, that's, that's one of the next steps, is the cutting off from, from friendships, the cutting off from family, the cutting off from, from support groups, the cutting off of any ways of escape. And, and they get kind of walled in. So now they're being shamed, they're being torn down, and, and then there's isolation. And then, and then comes verse 3 and verse 9. There's the deprivation of the necessities of life. The husband, Hosea, he's going to control what she eats, what she drinks, when she eats, when she drinks. I'm going to take those things away. I'm going to determine, I'm going to take your clothing away. I'm going to make you even more ashamed. And so there's this deprivation of the wife that happens here in, verse, in verses, verses 3 and verse 9. And then finally we've got, in verse 3 and verse 10, violence. I'm going to strip you naked. I'm going to display your shame in front of all of your lovers, which is some kind of an ancient version of revenge porn. And then, when that cycle is done, you know what happens next in the cycle of violence, right? There's the shaming, there's isolation, there's the violent act, and then there is the, oh, honey, 
I shouldn't have done that to you. It's just that I love you so much. And here come the flowers and here come the gifts and here come the weekends away and here come those things. In verse 14, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to charm you. I'm going to explain that this is all about because I love you so much that I just can't let this happen. And the cycle begins all again. And some of you have been maybe involved in that cycle. And some of you have maybe have friends who are in that cycle right now. And if that's your experience or you have friends in that in the experience, here's the answer. Get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. And so when people read this chapter, having come from that experience, having become more aware of these things, this, <laughs> this passage becomes problematic because it sort of adds up to an excuse for a controlling, violent husband. Husbands, I think, that they've got the right to discipline their wives. And then not only that, but people go the next step and they say, well, you know what, this so sounds like God is an abusive spouse to us. How is this God that acts in this way? How does this work? Maybe we shouldn't even be reading Hosea in the Bible. Problem is around here, we take it all on, <laughs> so we're going to keep going for it. So I did a whole pile of reading, more than normal in this time, especially feminist theologians and so on, just trying to get that perspective and trying to understand how this, how this works. And, and I was most helped, I'm going to put it on the screen here, I was most helped by, by a, a, a womanist theologian, which is slightly different from a feminist theologian since the 80s. I'm only four years behind. It was kind of a new term for me. But, but it's um, a woman by the name of Renita Weems, who... Um, wrote this article, Goma, a victim of violence or a victim of metaphor, which was really, really helpful. This is kind of her specialty. Uh, she wrote her, her dissertation at Princeton. Her dissertation for a doctoral degree, a PhD, was sexual and violence as an image for divine retribution in the prophetic writings. Sounds like a real good one to read before you go to bed at night and get anything up. But, but more popularized is uh, her 1995 volume, um, battered love, marriage, sex, and violence in the Hebrew prophets. I put that up. There. I only read the article. Don't get me wrong. I didn't read all that other stuff. But I know that for some of you, this is, a, this is a significant issue. And so I just would point you towards this. Now, just remember, when I tell you about books and this is good, and this, it doesn't mean that I agree 100% with anything that it said. I'm just saying that it was helpful to me. Always you need books with discernment and so on. But I wanted to give you that just in case you wanted to follow up. All right, so... How do we handle it? As people who believe in a loving God, as people who believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, how do we hear this and how do we talk about this and how do we work our way through this with our friends and with ourselves and, and with abused people and all of these? How do we do that today? Well, two or three things. What we're going to do, I'm going to kind of, we're going to, as you can tell, we're going to be in Bible college here for a little bit, and then we're going to change gears, and then we're going to have a bit of a sermon afterwards, okay? So that's kind of how it's going to go. So, how did the, what are the things that help me? Well, number one is you need to remember that this is poetic metaphor, okay? It's poetic metaphor. Now, you know when you read a poem, 
which is what chapter 2 is, and it's in a poetic structure in the Hebrew language. When you read a poem, you don't take it literally. You don't take every single word. I mean, you understand that there's some things here that are just sort of a picture. It's a thing that, that is intended to touch the heart before it touches the brain. Okay, that's, that's kind of the nature of poetry, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's how you can tell when there's a, po a powerful poem. So we, we kind of got that with, with a poem, but I want us to think for a minute about what a metaphor is. Okay? A metaphor. A metaphor is when you take two dissimilar things, two things that are, that are different, but you want to find a thread that is common between the two things, right? Does that make sense to you? Okay. And what happens is we take, usually take one picture that's very familiar to us, and we compare it or we tie it to something that's not very familiar to us. And we use the thing that we know all about to gain something, some kind of understanding about the thing that we don't know much about, right? That's, what a met that's why we use metaphors, right? It's like this. Well, you know, it's kind of like a dog or it's kind of like soup or whatever. So we take something that we know and we apply it. We tie it to something that we don't know very well. And we look, what's the common thread that ties these two things together? You getting this? Am I going too quick? You got it? The thread that ties together these two pictures of Hosea and Gomorrah and God and his people, the thread is a covenant. A covenant, okay? No surprise to us, the covenant stands at the center of it. In particular, the covenant that he uses as the, as the picture in the first three chapters, there's marriage. Now, Hosea, he uses all kinds of things to talk about covenants. Covenants is a big theme in Hosea. Uh, Hosea is one of the most, we can't skip Hosea when we're talking about Hesed because he's one of the guys that talks the most about Hesed. But covenant is a big theme. He talks about the covenant with Adam. He talks about the covenant with David. He talks about the covenant with Abraham. He talks about the covenant with Moses. And he even has new, uh, some hints there about the new covenant of, of with Jesus. So, so covenant is a big theme of Hosea. So it's not a surprise that the thread that's going to take marriage and God and his people together is the thread of covenant. He's going to tell us something deeper about God's covenant with his people by this picture of Hosea and Gomer. Does that make sense? So, what's the deeper thing we learn about God's covenant with his people through Hosea? Well, he uses all kinds of metaphors throughout his book. As a matter of fact, he uses like 12 different metaphors throughout the book of Hosea to talk about God's covenant. But the one that Hosea is most known for, probably because it's the most striking, probably because it's the most powerful, is this metaphor of marriage. And here's why. Here is what Hosea is trying to, going to dive in. He wants us to understand that God's covenant with his people is one of passion and emotion. It's one of passion and emotion. Because when, when we think about covenants, sometimes we mistake covenants for contracts, don't we? Because they, they sort of sound... Legal. They can sort of sound kind of hard. They can sort of sound like they're just sort of very logical and it's uh, dot the I's and cross the T's and there we go and there we have. 
where it goes. But with this marriage metaphor, it brings out the emotion. It brings out the human. It brings out the possibility that with this covenant with God, there is the possibility of great and marvelous joy, but there's also the possibility of great harm. Why? Because in the covenant of marriage, what we do is we make ourselves vulnerable to the other person. We give our hearts, we give our people, our our personhood, we give ourselves completely to this other person. We take all that we are and all of that feeling and all of those hopes and all of those dreams and all of those fears and all those things and we place them in the hands of somebody who's in covenant with us who can either nurture that or destroy that and so it's a very very vulnerable position you see the whole thing is this is what Jose is trying to tell us is that it's 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 staggering God is vulnerable to us God places his heart in our hands And we can shatter it. God's relationship is not simply one of obedience and loyalty, although it is that, but it's a relationship of intimacy and mutual love. This idea for the ancient peoples, I mean, there's no wonder that God uses this metaphor because there's no way that the ancient people around Israel would even think. I mean, gods were ones that you served. They were kind of capricious and they were kind of distant and all those kind of things. But there's this, this radical idea. No, the God within whom we are in covenant is, is vulnerable to us. We can shatter his heart. He feels his heart breaks when his spouses, that's us, wander away from him. It breaks, it shatters, it crushes, it destroys, it wrecks the life. That's kind of what it's trying to drive at here. This is what this is all about. So, sort of overall, the first two chapters of Hosea are intended to take us to the relational depth of marriage and see that this depth has potential for joy and security and vulnerability, which means it also has the potential for sorrow and heartache and a sense of panic desperation that relationship of marriage brings. And here's the problem. The problem comes when metaphors become almost too strong and they sort of capture us too much. And the details of the metaphor begin to take over. And suddenly, this doesn't become a metaphor about how God's heart can be shattered. Instead, it becomes a metaphor for what it's like to be a husband. That God is kind of this model husband. And what he's doing in the second chapter of Hosea, that's how husbands should treat their wives. And when God has this idea that God can take his people and he can send them into captivity, God can send droughts and so on, all of a sudden it becomes this idea that husbands have the right to discipline their wives. Because it's getting carried too far. And then it goes even one step further. We begin to see this, this sort of abusive relationship that, of, between husband and wife that happens here in chapter 3. And then we begin to say, well, you know what? We know men who abuse their wives. We've seen that. We've heard it. We're aware of it. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of these attributes of an abusive husband and I'm going to throw it upon this patriarchal, abusive God. You see how that three-step thing happens? 
And before you know it, the idea of this metaphor being a God whose heart can be shattered because he's vulnerable to you and to me, because he loves us so much, it becomes a metaphor of an abusive God who acts like an abusive spouse. And we run into trouble. This is a metaphor, we've got to get this, it's a metaphor of God's covenant with us saying that this is relational and it's deeply emotional and we wreck God's heart. And though he has the right to kill us, he just keeps coming back. No matter how often we abuse his grace, he just keeps coming back wanting to put Hesed into our lives once again. So that's the first thing. This is a poetic metaphor. Make sure you hold on to the right strand, which is covenant, and make sure you understand what it's saying about the covenant, that it's relational, and God makes himself vulnerable to us in that covenant. Number two. As you read this abusive language <laughs> in chapter two, it's not quite how it sounds. It's not quite how it sounds. We'll kind of address motion, but let's, let's think for a moment about this, this horrific language of stripping a spouse naked and exposing her shame to the public, this revenge porn stuff. What Weimer points out is that what's going on here is that, is that this is it's sort of like the punishment that matches the crime. You see, here's what's going on. Hosea, that's God, has provided everything that Gomer has, because in that culture, that's how, that's how that worked. Hosea provided with her clothing, her food, her drink. And in, instead of recognizing and responding to that because he's fulfilling his his husbandry obligation in that culture, instead of responding to that with love, she uses this provision to attract other lovers, become sexually intimate with them, and then, and here's the kicker, credits the lovers with providing her with what she has. Okay, you see, that, that's kind of what's going on here. As we'll see in just a little bit, what's going on is as, as Goma leaves Hosea and shacks up with these other guys, Hosea continues to provide food and clothing and money for support of Goma through the lover, you know, meets the guy in the marketplace and says, I know that, I know Goma's with you. Here's 200 bucks for to buy clothing. Here's 100 bucks for her food. But instead of Realizing, oh, this guy still loves me. Instead, Goma uses this clothing and this food to throw an orgy for herself and these other lovers and credit the lovers for giving her the good stuff. And so eventually, after time, after time, after time of doing that, Hosea comes to this point where he says, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to be giving you any new clothing. I'm not going to be giving you this money to have these orgies with. I'm not going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to stop providing. Now, what you need to understand here is in that culture, that was a declaration of divorce. Okay? So if you quit providing for your spouse, you are devoured, divorcing that spouse. So these words are, okay, I've been providing all of this stuff. 
that you need to live, but you're crediting your lovers with giving you the stuff. And so you know what? We're divorced. I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. You're on your own. Your lovers can look after you. See? And so it's a, it's a whole deal where what she was doing, what, what he withdraws, ties directly into what she was doing. Because he says, when you do that, when I no longer provide you with what you need, when you can no longer have the Armani clothing, when you can no longer throw these orgies, when you can no longer splash your money out on these lovers of yours, then these lovers are going to see that you actually have very little to offer them. And they're going to cast you off as a slave. And then hopefully you'll begin to understand and recognize that it's me, not these men, who are your lovers and your providers. And it's me, says God to Israel, who is your lover and your provider, not these false gods that you're pursuing. So when you get into the details of this very violent language, it has a slightly different meaning than what, than what our, our sensibilities would say because of, uh, because of the, some of the horrific things we've exposed, been exposed to in terms of sexual and domestic violence. Number three. And this is the last one for the academic stuff. Number three. We are Gomer. We're Gomer. We're not Hosea, who sacrificially goes out, who's loving all this, da, 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 da. Because we're not God. We're not Hosea. And we're not some third objective party looking out there and standing in judgment of Hosea or standing in judgment of Goma or standing in judgment of God. We, in this picture, in this story, are Goma. We are the ones who are spiritually promiscuous. We are the ones who continue to take on other lovers in the face of a passionate, all-supplying God. And so as we hear this story, hopefully, hopefully we pointed a little bit towards some of the concerns and the right concerns that are raised. But as we hear these three chapters, hear them with the ears of Goma. A people who are continually and habitually adulterous and promiscuous. And then we'll hear the words of God very differently. So we're going to pray and then we'll sort of kick into this next gear. Almighty God, first off, I want to, <laughs> I want to pray for people, men and women, who find themselves in abusive relationships. Because, you know, although we know historically and sociologically the dominant side is husbands abusing wives, but we also realize it, it goes the other way and, and we don't want to dismiss that. And there is this cycle of violence. There is this attitude of... Um, dominant main sexuality and two standards and all, all of these things. We, we understand that this is all too prevalent in our society. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing that we can talk to each other and 
talk to you and talk to our kids and our friends about these things and face up to them. So I, I just pray, Father, for deliverance for people who are in that, in that spot. But Father, as we, as we sort of change gears now and we just sort of try to tap into the passion that you have for us, that we, we, we just stop for a minute and, and realize that we can break your heart. Sometimes it's easy for us to think about you being this distant, all-powerful God, sort of immovable and unemotional and just sort of some kind of a Greek distant God thing, but that, that is not who you are. You are a God of passion and of love and of care and of hesed. And so help us, God. Help us to hear the story of hesed from the perspective that is us, that we are Goma. in our eyes 
to keep on loving us. Because we are Goma. And so Goma in our story represents God's people. In this case, historically Israel, the northern kingdom, who at this time were living in just massive rebellion against God and, and following other gods, in particular Baal, the Canaanite god of storms, the god of power, the god of might, and, and Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility and prosperity. They were living in an age where kings were... were murdered and prophets were ignored and the judges were corrupt and the priesthoods were terrible and corrupt and the people were hardened. That was the order of the day. And although God sends a spiritual head around them, verse 6, called prophets and the law, they just step over that hedge of thorns and walls that is set there to protect them and continue to pursue other gods. And so Goma is this promiscuous woman. It's the setup. Goma was a promiscuous woman. Some people think that she was a professional prostitute. Other people say, no, 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 uh, she wasn't a professional prostitute. She actually was just a woman of what we might call loose morality. They debate over it, and there's all kinds of technical stuff, but in the end, the bottom line is that she was somebody who was promiscuous with her sexuality. Her name actually means complete. And the whole idea of it being complete is that, is that it's this idea that she's seeking something to make her life complete. And she's seeking that in the form of sexual relationships with men, uh, men from whom she can gain something, whether it's uh, approval or money or whatever the case may be, depends on how uh, she approaches the issue. Somehow she's seeking to find herself completion in men. Who knows her motivation? Perhaps it was desperation and fear. Maybe she'd been cast out. Maybe that she was somehow handicapped in some way and this is the only way that she was going to get it. Maybe, actually, as some of the feminist theologians say, well, no, 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 she actually was a woman who had taken charge of her own sexuality and she was using that for her own gain and to get ahead in society and to get into her life. She actually is a woman who is powerful and she's just using men to gain that which she needs. And the easiest way for her to do that is through sexuality. Who knows the, the motivation? But we're Goma. And the truth is, we spend a great deal of our energy and our time trying to look for completion. Trying to get some sense of wholeness. Trying to get some sense of being together. Trying to find some satisfaction. And we look for it all over the place. We look for it in popularity. We look for it in wealth. We look for it in gaining power. We look for it in pleasure. We look for it in mindless distractions. We're looking to be complete and for our life to settle in. And all the time there is this God calling us into covenant, trying to explain to us, I am your completion. I am the one who will make you complete. If you'll just know me and allow me to love you and pour my hesed upon you. And so this promiscuous woman is to be married by a prophet. And as the setup of chapter one continues, we read that God tells Hosea to go and marry this promiscuous woman, just like I am committed to a promiscuous people who are always wandering away from me, looking for their satisfaction, looking for their completion in their life, and then have children with her. But call those children names of warning. Call your firstborn son Jezreel. 
He's pointing back to a time in 2 Kings 9 where Jehu comes and he kills all the rulers of the day, including the great Jezebel, and because of their idolatry. And when you read in 2 Kings that Jehu actually is a hero, but all of a sudden here in Hosea, he flips around. And so the scholars say, well, probably what's going on is, is that there's a hint that Jehu in the end took that upon himself and sort of ended up with doing this selfishly, not just for God. And he began to sow the seeds of idolatry that we see in Hosea's day. And he says, and then you're going to have another child, and it's going to be a daughter, and so call her Lo-Rahamah, which means not loved. Because I'm having a hard time loving my people when they're breaking my heart this way. And I'm starting to feel like many of us perhaps have felt like I need to protect my heart because my heart can't take loving somebody who just keeps spitting in my face. And he said, and then have another child, and it's going to be a son, lo ami, which means not my people. Because fine, if you're going to wander away from me and pursue these other gods, then fine. You can be a people of those other gods and not my people anymore. So now imagine Goma. Here she is, this woman, either a prostitute or one that sleeps around, whichever the case may be. And then this prophet, this, this man who has a reputation of righteousness, who obviously is close to God. He comes to her and says, will you be my bride? The spiritual servant of God, will you be my bride? Now maybe, maybe because she has the best intentions. Maybe because she says, this is, this is my this is my." my path out of this trap into which I find myself. Maybe she sees this is going to be my rescue, my deliverer. Or maybe she says, oh, this is just a fool. This is going to be somebody who's just an easy uh, ticket for me. It's going to be a backup plan. I'm going to carry on just like I'm living. But man, now I can just go home all the time and have this backup plan going. We don't know what it is. Or maybe it's just another man to manipulate. We don't know which of those things. But she marries him. And we're Goma. Although we know the problems in our life and the sin of our life, God comes to us and says, Be my spouse. Be my spouse. And most of us sitting here, maybe those of you watching online, have said, yeah, I want that. And maybe it's out of selfish motives. Maybe it's just because, you know, we just know that, hey, we can get now, we can get all the good stuff and, and not love. Maybe it's that. Maybe we can tell that, that yeah, we're going to want that. I'm going to carry on living the way in which I'm going to want to live, but I'm going to take this as a backup plan. Or maybe we're going to say, yeah, this is my way out. And I'm going to do my absolute best to live as a faithful bride of God. God, you've got every right to not love me because of how I've lived. And yet you want to put those things behind you and you want to marry me. And then we blow it. And there's a sense of God's heartache where we act out in ways that we are not God, we are not his, we don't belong to him, we don't deserve God's grace and all of these kind of things. And, and we can perhaps begin to hear the judgment of God. But God has no sooner declared this, this 
problem, this brokenheartedness, and that you're not loved anymore, you're not going to be my people anymore. No sooner you've done that than God relents. And right there, we don't even get out of the first chapter when all of a sudden God changes his mind and all of those things that he said about the children's names, he turns them around and reverses them. And yet the Israelites are going to be like sand in the seashore. I'm going to multiply them. They're going to be like my bride, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, I'm going to say, you're my children. Children of God. And the people of Judah and the people of Israel are going to come together and they'll appoint one leader and he'll come out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel when the idolatry and the adultery will stop. That's what the day of Jezreel is all about. God relents and he says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to make them my children. And there's going to become a day when a leader will restore all of my people and this idolatry will stop. And then we get into the agony of Hosea and God's heart. Goma continues to advertise and practice in front of everyone else that she is a woman who is available and willing in fact, more than this, it's not that she's available. She actually pursues these other men. And so these little barriers that Hosea puts up, this, these barriers of thorns and this wall that goes in, they're enough to stop the lovers pursuing Goma, but they're not enough to stop Goma pursuing other lovers. And she steps over them and continues to pursue these other lovers. How foolish of Hosea to think that little things like that could stop her. And so she leaves Hosea, but to her absolute disbelief, he continues to provide her with everything that she needs to live. Hosea, in some kind of crazy love, gives the men she's having sex with and living with food and clothing and money to pass on to his estranged wife. That's what verse 8 is all about. And you must be thinking, surely, has this guy got no pride? Has this guy got no self-respect? What a foolish man he is. The law of the land says that he could kill me and have me stoned to death for the way I'm acting. But instead, he just keeps heaping this good stuff upon me that I can use to carry on my party life. What a fool this Hosea must be. But where Goma? I step over God's ways and instructions. You pursue other ways of satisfaction and completing, not recognizing that God, out of his crazy love, still provides for us. And here's the strange thing, that sometimes we continue to give credit to our false gods for providing us. Oh, it's my power that got me into this position. Oh, it's my slick moving that allowed me to benefit from this. Oh, it's my relational connections that got me to this higher point. Oh, it's my ability to function in the gray that lets me get a little bit of a margin, a little bit of a cut above the rest. It's my smarts that do it. It's my position that do it. And we take the gifts of God and we assign them to other gods of power and relational connectionship and popularity and who knows what. And so God in Hosea says, all right, I'm going to withdraw. And I'm going to let her face the consequences. Finally, in, in this 
turmoil and agony, Hosea says no more. I'm not meeting your lovers anymore in the marketplace to give them money and clothing and food for you so you can throw parties. I'm no longer going to supply all your needs. I'm going to give to you the declaration of divorce. Okay, if you want them, you can have them because I am out. I don't know about you, but I can't help but thinking that, that Gomer, when she gets this word, that, oh, oh, he's not going to give me any clothes anymore, he's not going to feed me anymore, he's not going to give me the money anymore. <laughs> I can't believe it lasted as long as he did. What a fool he must have been. <laughs> but I'm fine. I've got plenty of lovers, and I'm a woman in demand, and I can make my own way without this Hosea. I'll do just fine. And we are Gomer. And sometimes God has to withdraw his blessing for a while. For as long as we would harm ourselves or his name with his provision, he sometimes, as he did with Israel, says, all right, I withdraw my hand of blessing for a while. But even as he does this, we see the agony of loss and love for his people. No sooner has he done that. No sooner has he said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Then we find him relenting again. No, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to say all these things and my heart is broken and shattered and I can divorce her and I can call these things up, but, but I can't do it. Look at that at verse 14. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I'll lead her into the wilderness and I'll speak tenderly to her. The wilderness where, where we had that, that connection with them, with Moses and all those things. It's a place where we can be restored again. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to, I'm going to just try and win her back. I can't do it. I can't cut her off. I can't say no. I can't not provide for her. I'm just want to, I'm going to try to bring her back. And I want to try to reestablish a happy marriage situation. And I want her to call me the husband. And I want to erase the power dynamic. That's what verse 16 is all about. In that day declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. And you no longer call me my master. I want you to understand that, that this is a relationship of love and of hesed and of cur. It's not this power thing where you, you're maybe rebelling and being hurt because you call this master, this patriarchal domineering thing. It's not going to be like that. Because I just love you. What I'm going to do is this, verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in hesed. In hesed and compassion. In mercy, in grace, in loving kindness, in generosity, with immense favor, with steadfast love, with compassion. I'm going to betroth you to myself with these things. We are Gomer. And no matter how far we wander from God, no matter how viciously we break the heart of God and his desire for us, no matter how long we go on our own way, his heart aches. That's why we pray continually at the staff prayer meetings for our wandering ones, because God's heart aches. And God's desire is to allure back, to bring back, to woo back, to bring back people who have wandered from her. His desire is to allure you back 
with love and to pour his hesed onto your life, no matter how adulterous to the one God that there is, we have been. And so it kind of comes to this last little vignette in the story of chapter 3, where Goma by now is a slave. It seems like her attractiveness has faded. Maybe it's because she no longer has the money and the clothing and so on because Jose has been providing. But somehow her lover that has her at that moment tires of her and puts her up for sale. Perhaps even in the slave market. And there Goma stands, broken, used up, poverty-stricken, and unwanted. The world was done with her. Man, she surely must have been heartbroken. Maybe she was angry at life. Maybe she's angry at herself. Maybe she's angry with her lovers who made her all these false promises. Maybe she's just plain overwhelmed with shame and a sense of lostness. And as she stands on that auction block, surrounded by vultures, here comes Hosea. Surely he's come to gloat. Surely he's come to say, I've got what I deserved. Surely he's come to mock me. Surely he's come to wag his chin and point his finger. No. He looks upon me with mercy and compassion and grace and loving kindness. And he walked past me, Goma, to my ex-lover. And he pays him the slave price. And he buys my freedom once more. But he doesn't say, okay, just be gone. I'm embarrassed because of you. He says, come and be mine. Come and live with me many days. Please, no more giving yourself away to other people who take and do not give. Don't be intimate with any other man. And Goma, I'm going to treat you the same way. I'm not going to go into you is the language. And some of the Hebrew scholars say that's the sexual language for sexual intercourse. And that's Hosea saying, listen, you don't sleep with other men and I'm not going to sleep with you unless you want me to. Unless you understand that this is love. Because I will never abuse you. And I will never, ever Treat you in the way that you've acted. How foolish is this man to pay this price for my sin, she must have thought. 
and only ask that I allow him to love me. How foolish is this God of ours? Because we're Goma and we are slaves to sin and we get used up by the other gods and the forces of the world that we give ourselves over to. And God comes to us not to gloat, not to say see, but he comes and he pays the price of our freedom on the cross of Calvary. And he says to you and to you and to me, let me pour my hesed upon you. Let me drench you in mercy and celebrate you with forgiveness and live with you again in covenantal faithfulness so that you can experience my love and kindness. Come to me. Because in spite of the fact, Alan, that you broke my heart and you mistreated me and you crushed my emotions. Let me treat you with gentleness. Let me show Hesed to you. This foolish, foolish, crazy, insane, ridiculous kind of love. So how do we respond to God's hazard? Almighty God, when we just strip out the concerns that we've already talked about and just think about the shattering of your hearts that, that my actions keep heaping upon you as I wander off. And even some of the good things in life, I don't credit to you. I credit to some of these other gods that I'm pursuing of power and wealth and popularity and success, whatever, whatever these things are. And in your mercy, you just, you just pour what we need through those things upon us. And, and sometimes we just, I, don't even recognize it. And then we come to the end of our rope somehow. And whatever situation we're in gets done with us and sometimes we can feel kind of washed up and abandoned, but you come and buy us back and say, make me your husband. How do we respond to your hesed? How do I, in my situation right now, respond to your hesed, your mercy, your forgiveness, your loving kindness. Help us, Holy Spirit, to think on these things now through Christ. Amen.